Let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to start talking about judgment. Ooh, fun stuff. O oh God, in whom we live and move and have our being, today we are living and moving. Today we exist because you have made it to be so. Today we rejoice and praise you for the simple fact of our lives and the fact that you love us, the fact that you are with us. We remember these things even though we don't always see them, even though we don't always feel them. We know them to be true, and we ask that you would teach us even more so how they are true. We thank you for each other and the amazing gift that it is simply to be gathered in this place where we are safe and warm and dry and well-fed and clothed and looking forward to a beautiful time of study and fellowship. We thank you for those things, realizing that not all of your children across the face of this good earth enjoy them in the way that we do. And so we think of them, and we ask you to continue to teach us ways that we can share those blessings. We think of these things especially because you have called us to be family with each other. You have called us to follow your Son into the blessed and eternal life. And so we pray in His name. Amen. Okay, how many of you spend a lot of time thinking about the final judgment of all things? <laughs> of course you don't. <laughs> this is not happy, clappy, feel-good stuff. But you know what? That's the way life is. Sometimes we have to talk about hard stuff and important stuff. Otherwise, we do not have the lives we were meant to have. We are transitioning now. As I mentioned last week, we are leaving this general study of the image, the topic of light in the Scripture, and we're moving back into a conversation that will take us through the rest of the Apostles' Creed. And so we are coming to that phrase in the Apostles' Creed that says that Jesus came from His uh, life, from His death, from His resurrection sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. That's the language that I learned. From there he shall come to judge the living and the not living. That's what quick is, of course, just alive. That's what we're going to focus on today, the topic of judgment. Uh, let me assure you, I hope you will be challenged. Um, I hope you also will be encouraged. So let's read a passage from Matthew 25, and then we'll talk about that. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep at His right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then... The righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? 
And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Heard this one before? Of course. Of course. There's a lot to talk about here. There's more to talk about than just those memorable phrases of, I was hungry and you fed me, or I was hungry and you did not feed me, etc., etc., etc. This story, this teaching from the words from the lips of Jesus himself comes at the end of several stories, several parables that Jesus has already told according to the way that Matthew structures the story. Jesus has already talked about the parable of the faithful and the unfaithful servant. God leaves, uh, is the master who leaves things in charge of, of, his, of his possessions, of, the, of his territory. One servant is faithful, the other is unfaithful. It's a way of describing uh, metaphorically what it's like in the kingdom and what the kingdom is all about and what this life is all about. We are left in charge. Do we make wise choices? Do we not? He's told the parable of the ten bridesmaids. They're waiting for the groom to come. Some of them have to leave to go get more oil for their lamps, and in the process, they miss when the groom comes. Others are smart. They've thought ahead. They've paid attention. They've brought extra oil. He's told us the parable of the talents, where a master leaves and he gives some of his resources, different amounts to different, uh, different servants, and some of them invest it and use it and care for it and make more, and one of them puts it in the ground because he's afraid. All of these are, are parables, they're images that sort of reveal the truth about this life to us and what we're doing down here, and they're pretty clear. But now Jesus moves from the discussion of images and metaphors to just a flat out, this is the way it will be. It's not a parable, it's not an image, it's just this is the way it will be. And let's be honest with each other, we don't like this story, okay? We don't like this story, but it's one of the most important ones in the entire gospel according to Matthew. We need to look at it. Let's look at the way we move into the story. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. The Son of Man, that's one of the ways that Jesus often referred to Himself. There's a lot of scholarly discussion about exactly what Jesus might have meant. A son of man is a man, right? Okay, Jesus is a man. In some sense, he is the man. 
Just like Adam was the first man, we are told elsewhere in Scriptures that Jesus is the new man, the person par excellence, the way people are meant to be, okay? But Son of Man is also a way of talking about the divine side of Jesus as well. And clearly Jesus means that here because He immediately transitions into telling us about the King who's going to be sitting on His throne. Jesus is the King of all things, okay? He says, when the King comes back, and all of His angels with Him, right? Every creature that is alive in the heavenly realm of things is with the King. This is when the King comes back in His glory and sits on His throne of glory. It's a sort of shorthand way of trying to move us into that period at the end of all history, when there is going to be a reckoning when everything finally comes to its appointed end and purpose and we see what the deal has been, right? We call it the final judgment. We call it the consummation of all of history. Jesus doesn't say when it's going to come elsewhere. He tells us he doesn't know the exact time and date and place. That's really not the point even of this story. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. The king is in his kingdom now. All the angels are gathered there and all the nations before him. Everybody who ever was, who ever will be, who is right now. Everybody, zero exceptions. Nobody's staying home to look after the animals and feed the kids their supper and put them to bed. Everybody is here. Every body, everything, every creature, every sentient being in all of creation and all of history is here. We can't really conceive what that's like, but that's what Jesus says it is. Everybody's here and the king is back. The shepherd is back. What happens? Very simple. Just like a shepherd separates sheep from goats, so will the king separate all creatures into two sides. One side where things are going to be wonderful, the other side where things are going to be the opposite. The great judgment day, right? Now, we all come from out of religious traditions and histories where either the judgment was never talked about or it was talked about only briefly or maybe where it was focused on solely and exclusively and the fear of hell was beat into you so that you would try to love God, right? Lots of ways that we have talked about this final day of judgment and what's actually going on with it. In most modern Christianity in the Western world, in the world that you and I live in, I would have to say that very, very few people ever really talk much about the judgment anymore. Would you agree with me there? There are some pockets, there are some places within the broad Christian family that seem to speak exclusively about the judgment. But most of the time, most people don't talk about it. And I have to say that in the, the course of my ministry and in the way that, that I've been involved in the life of the church, we've been much more interested in talking about the grace and love of a forgiving and kind Savior who is our best friend, and aren't we happy that we're all going to heaven? That's kind of the way we talk. And none of what I've just said is untrue, but we have to admit that in the story of Scripture, 
In the very words of Jesus himself, and this is probably the most graphic, most easily understood place, there is a long conversation about the judgment of God. So we have to take it seriously. As a pastor, I am bound by, uh, by my oath, by my calling, uh, to do the best that I can do to be honest with you about what's in the Scripture. Therefore, I must talk with you about the judgment today. Not just because I'm a pastor, but because I'm also a Christian just like you. And this is in the book. We can't just flip the page and say, I don't like that part of the story. We have to deal with it. It's a very important part of the story as far as Matthew is concerned, because in the way that Matthew organizes his story about the life of Jesus, this is the last time we hear directly from Jesus, except in the conversation about the passion, right? And that's really the big story, the, the, uh, the, uh, the trial, the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. This is the last thing we hear from all of the teaching of Jesus. Now, we don't know if it actually was the last thing Jesus said. None of us could ever know because the, the four Gospels organized their stories a little bit differently. But as far as Matthew was concerned, this was a big story. Matthew took very seriously this teaching from Jesus about what's going to happen at the end. And so we have to do that as well. Remember that we do that because it's Jesus who's saying this. Let's never forget, this is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, who died for you, who is telling this story. Okay? Let's keep that underneath everything, and it will help us to move through this. So the image is pretty simple. Everybody's gathered, there's going to be a judgment. There are the sheep and the goats, right? Anybody here ever raised sheep? Okay? There we go. We got a couple of sheep herders back here. Just coming from the Middle East, you see sheep everywhere. You see shepherds everywhere. Sometimes they just have, you know, half a dozen uh, sheep and goats with them. Sometimes it's several hundred and on the hillsides, they're everywhere, right? So when Jesus talks about dividing the sheep and the goats, that is a normal, common, everyday experience for the people with whom he is speaking. Someone yesterday asked, they said, well, why do the sheep get the good place and the goats get the bad place? What's wrong with the goats, right? Any of you ever asked that question? You know, goats, goats are pretty cool. They gave us great, great milk and all kinds of stuff, okay? This is not a value judgment about the sheep and the goats. This is a statement that the shepherd knows the difference between the two, and it's really easy to tell the difference, and he makes that distinction. That's what the story is about. Don't get hung up on sheep and goats. This is just telling us the shepherd knows the score. Okay? That's what you got to pay attention to. The shepherd knows the score. Well, what is the score? The shepherd, the king, says, Come, you that are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the time of the foundation of the world. What a great story. You think winning $1.5 in the lottery in South Carolina is a big deal? Which, by the way, if that were one of you, I'd like to have a visit with you. <laughs> right? Isn't that what you want to hear from the shepherd? You go over here, and you're going to inherit the kingdom. This is a story about the kingdom. All of the stories, the stories about the talents and the bridesmaids and all of those 
are stories that Jesus is telling us about the kingdom. The kingdom is, is a way of looking at all of existence. That's what people are interested in is the kingdom of God. We want to know how it is we get into the kingdom, what the kingdom is like, how it functions, how we are part of it, because we want to be living with God our Creator and not away from God our Creator. And this is where Jesus says, this is what the kingdom is about. This is another way of looking at the kingdom. You're going to get to be in the kingdom because, by the way, you've already been doing kingdom kinds of things. That's part of what this story says to us. So the righteous say, what's up with this, right? Jesus says it's very simple. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me water. I was naked and you gave me clothes. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was sick and you came and visited me. I was in prison and you came and visited me. You've heard that before, haven't you? It's kind of easy just to focus on that, and we must focus on that, but we need to understand the larger context that we're in. Think of that list for a second. Think of those things that Jesus talks about there, right? Everything he talks about there basically sort of outlines for us all of the things that people need, right? Now, I know some of us think we need, you know, a new car and we need a bigger house and we need X and Y and Z. No, we need food, we need clothing, we need shelter. We need to know that somebody loves us. That's the business of welcome, right? We need at least one other person in the world who loves us, who welcomes us. We need to know that when we're sick, when we're, when we're physically, mentally in trouble, that somebody cares. And we need to know that when society has put us away, for whatever reason, that somebody cares. That's the prison thing. I always kind of used to get hung up on the, the prison thing, thinking, well, you know, if you're in prison, you deserve to be there. Why should I bother to come visit you? Um, and that's not a very Christian attitude. And that actually doesn't understand that an awful lot of people are put in prison in this world that have no business being in prison. Maybe they owed some money. Maybe their politics was wrong. Maybe they got, uh, you know, mistakenly identified. Wasn't it just a, a few days ago we heard about a guy, the DNA test showed that he had been in prison for 35 years for a murder he didn't commit, okay? Being in prison means you are taken out of human society and human circulation. And yet here's someone who says you are still included in society and human circulation. So this little list that Jesus gives is extremely memorable, right? It's very easy to understand. It's very simple. Here is human need. And as you answered human need around you, you were doing it not just for that person, but you were doing it for me. Have you ever encountered this idea? It's in the scripture. It's right here. It's other places that the way we see Jesus today is to look at the people who are around us, right? Have you ever had that thought? When you're meeting another person, you are meeting Jesus. Now, we like to meet certain people. I like to meet people who are, have had a bath, um, who look like me, who talk like me, who think like me, uh, who are going to make my life happier. I love to see Jesus in those people. Y'all are pretty easy to see Jesus in, by the way. You know, y'all have had a bath within the last month or so, probably. Um, it's harder to see Jesus in that person who's not like that. Let's just put it that way. Okay? 
But there's where we see Jesus. Jesus makes a very clear, very simple, very unmistakable connection between our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. In some sense, there is no difference between those two things. I hear people say all the time, God and I have a great relationship. And usually that's in context of talking about their bad relationships with everybody else. It's not that none of us are, are immune from having bad relationships. But Jesus always wants to talk about your positive relationship with God in relationship to your positive relationship with others. And of course, that idea is picked up in the New Testament over and over and over again, most memorably in the little letters of John. Remember 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? You say you love God, that's great. I'm glad you love God. Prove it to me by how well you love your brother and your sister. And who is my neighbor, by the way? Takes us to the story of the Good Samaritan. This story, in some sense, of the final judgment brings together so many of the major themes and ideas and affirmations and truths and realities of everything in life. Everything in life. That's another reason we can't get away from this story. Now, Jesus is telling a story that's very clear to us at the very beginning, and then He tells us the positive side, then He tells us the, the flip side of that, and frankly, it gets a little bit boring. Right? As you read the story, you know, I was sick and you came and visited me. I was hungry and you gave me food. And then I was sick, but you didn't come and visit me. It's like, why do you have to repeat this over and over again? We get the point of it, don't we, Jesus? Well, Jesus tells the positive side and the negative side because it's so important. We need to dwell with this for a while. Right? We need to dwell with this for a while because if we try to gloss over this or skip over this or don't understand what this is about, we have missed so much of what Jesus is all about and what God is all about. It's very simple. It's very clear cut. It's very uh, cut and dried, we would say, black and white, if you will. And, but we're left with some questions about all this, right? What is one of the biggest questions, the biggest issues and hangups that you think we might have with this story the way it's told? Think about that a second. If you take just this story and don't go deeply into it, you're left with the impression that our salvation, our ultimate destination, depends completely on the choice we have made, on what we have done. Okay? In classic terminology, we would call that works righteousness. If you're a good person, you'll get to heaven. If you're a bad person, you'll go to hell. How many times have you heard that? How many times have I heard that? Even from people that have been Calvinistic Presbyterians sitting in my church for 20 years still don't get it. Going to heaven is not completely about the business of being good or being bad, even though we have this story. So what's going on behind this story? Well, behind this story, we have to remember that it's Jesus telling of the story, the same Jesus who said that you can't be good enough to get into heaven that you depend on God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's love. So on the one hand, we have the reality of God's grace, right? I can't be good enough to get into heaven. You can't be good enough to get into heaven. The only way that any of us can get into heaven is if Jesus just says, I've paid the price, I love you anyway, God loves you anyway, you're going to heaven. Okay, that's what we call faith righteousness. 
And yet Jesus also tells this story that kind of wants to talk about a works righteousness. What decisions did you make? So let's put this in this broad framework, okay? The broad framework starts and ends with Jesus, okay? Jesus, who we know right after he tells this story, is going to go die for us to prove once and for all God's absolute eternal love for us, to prove once and for all that we cannot be good enough to earn God's love. But as soon as we say that, we have to say something else. That something else is that, that what the thing that Jesus does does not offer us a free ticket into heaven. Therefore, it makes no difference what we do in this world. Therefore, we are completely not responsible and therefore irresponsible for what we do in this world. Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you really are following me, if you really do accept my love and my forgiveness, if you really do believe that all of this stuff is true, then here is how you will act. You will act differently. You will actually extend the grace that I've given you and you will give it to someone else. Notice in this conversation that Jesus never says, you fed people who deserved to be fed. You gave clothing to someone who you knew later on down the line would return that favor. That you visited somebody in prison because they were a relative of yours and you had to do it because your mom said you needed to go do it. There's no quid pro quo or anything going on here. Jesus is saying to us that if you understand what I have done for you, then you will start doing that same for others and offer the free gift of love in tangible ways. If you're not doing that, then you still don't have a clue what the kingdom is about. Does that make sense to you? In one other place in Scripture, Jesus says, the one who has been forgiven of much forgives much. The one who is forgiven of little forgives little. When I initially read that 82 years ago, I started thinking, well, some people are bad people, they have to be forgiven of a lot, and other people are pretty good people, they don't have to be forgiven of very much. And then I realized that all Jesus was saying is that the person who truly understands just how bad they have been and just how hopeless our situation is understands how much forgiveness is offered to us, and then we become more forgiving people. If you meet a person who does not forgive others, that person doesn't understand how much they've been forgiven of. If you meet a person who doesn't care about other people, you meet a person who doesn't understand how much God cares about him or her. Does that all make sense to you? But we're still left with the story that doesn't let us off the hook, okay? Let's go this way with it. Um, and I'm going to shut up for a minute and get your questions and thoughts here. This gets me excited. <laughs> I've always asked the question about this story. Say, okay, Jesus, let's just take hungry people. Let's just leave it at that, okay? One, one little aspect of all these things. Hungry people. There's hungry people out there now. There's hungry people within, probably within a mile of where we are right now, certainly within 10 miles, and certainly millions of them within, within several hundred miles, Okay. What am I doing to feed hungry people? What am I doing? I'm doing a little bit. This is self-confession, right? I give a little bit. I do a little bit of stuff, try to take care of some people. But am I doing enough? You know, am I called to 
liquidate all my, all my assets and take all my money and give it to hungry people right now? Or how much am I supposed to take? I could give more, I could give less. How much am I supposed to give? Have you ever asked yourself that question? If you have not, then you darn well better today. That's part of what this story is saying. There's always more need out there that we can possibly meet. And for a lot of us, especially in our context, we have to keep asking that question, how much more can I do? I, I think that's the only way to be responsible to this message here. Okay? And yet understanding that, that however much I do is not what's going to earn God's love for me. That all makes sense to you? I don't have a good answer for you. Uh, one answer that some people come to when it talks about just giving and helping others uh, is the old biblical thing of 10%, right? The tithe. You know, do your 10% if it's good. 10% of your time, 10% of your money, 10% of your energy, whatever that is, okay? And for some people, that really works very well. Most of us need to work to get there. Um, and yet Jesus never talks about a tithe. Jesus never talks about 10%. I think for some of us, 10% is nowhere near enough. There are people like that in this church who say, oh, I gave way more than 10% because 10% is not enough. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Is it just 10%? If you are, you know, I, I don't know these people personally, and I'm not picking on them personally, but we understand who we're talking about. If you're Bill Gates and you have, what is the number, $75 billion, Right? Does that mean you should give away $7.5 billion and keep the rest of it for yourself? Okay. You know, can Bill and Melinda afford to live on a little less than that? You know, can they have a good life? Now, Bill and Melinda do give a lot more than that. But you see where the problem is, where the question is. And we want to talk about Bill and Melinda Gates, and we want to talk about Warren Buffett and whoever else, but we don't want to talk about us. I could live at a lower lifestyle myself and give more, and I, most of you could too. Conversely, I've met other people who give 10% or give a significant amount, and they almost have no business giving away that much. It's a fascinating thing. How much can I do? And it's not just money, it's time. It's energy, right? For every moment I spend on the golf course, maybe I should be down at a soup kitchen somewhere. I don't know. I'm just kind of spilling my guts to you here. Let me shut up for a second. What questions do you have? What observations do you have? What do you do with this story? Okay, let's get a mic. Can we get a mic going here? I can show. Yeah. Stand up and talk loud. No. Oh. Okay, so I'm, I'm taking on the thing. I'll See? step further and think about the fact that the U.S. is blessed with lots and lots of food. Mm -hmm. And there is not lots and lots of food in the world. So maybe part of this is also thinking about ways in which we can better use the resources we have, better share the resources we have. And so it's not as simple as popping down some money in the collection plate. Yes, yes, absolutely. Good thought, good thought. Part, part of the conversation of feeding people is not just the direct handing over of food, but helping other cultures produce more food and making sure we get the food to the right places. It is it is a hard thing to do sometimes to give to others. Absolutely. Yes. Good observation. Um, what came to mind, I hope I'm not saying a bad thing, is uh, throughout Jesus' ministry, it seems like he became very frustrated with his disciples and the people. Mm -hmm. And I kind of sense that in these words of his, 
It's like we just don't get it. And it comes back to love your neighbor. Love your neighbor and love your God. Yeah. And from that, all else will will fall into place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I would agree with you. You know, I, I can't imagine how frustrated Jesus just, must have been. The yeah. other thing that comes to mind is the prison part. Mm-hmm. You mentioned people who perhaps don't belong there. But what about those that really do? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's very clear in Scripture, those that do belong there need our visits even worse than those that don't belong there. Well, just to say, I had a pastor once who was convicted of pedophilia. Uh-huh. I'm not going to visit him. Right. I hope he dies in jail. Just right. saying. Right. Yeah, I totally get that. I totally get that. I also understand not everyone is called to do everything. Right? The kind of person who can have a, an ultimately productive and redemptive relationship, let's say, with that pedophile, okay? That's a, a pretty unique and rare and special person. But there are such people, and I believe their call is to do that thing. I also believe that every single one of us is called to do something, to do something, and to do more of that something than we ever dreamed possible. To me, this story keeps pushing me and will never stop pushing me. And it shouldn't stop pushing you either. Keep asking, what more can I do? Not out of a sense of guilt, but out of a sense of a desire to be more part of what God is doing in the world because there's nothing more beautiful than that. Right? Let's keep going. Let's hear more from you. Yes? This is just a comment. Ironically, the man who won that lottery ticket Uh uh-huh let someone go in front of him in line to buy that ticket. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> oh, that's priceless. Uh-huh. Yeah, I had heard that part of the story. We're all dying to find out who it was, right? He's going to stay anonymous. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yes. Over here to Lynn. Grab the mic. There's a saying that we should Help link those the mic who help themselves. Uh huh. Uh huh. Where does that fit into this? Um, it's not in the Bible. No. <laughs> right? Okay. Yes. That's one of those most, and I know you know that it's not in the Bible. Um, that's one of those saying, you know, people come to me and say, Jack, where does it say in the Bible that God helps those who help themselves? And I say, nowhere. And they look at me like, well, we thought you knew what's in the Bible. <laughs> It's not there. We understand where that sentiment comes from, right? That God does call us to be responsible with our lives and do the very best we can, right? That's very important. So this idea that that God is helping those who are taking care of themselves, that that makes a certain amount of sense. And, you know, I I would never say to my children, just sit back and be lazy because some Christian is going to come and take care of you. Of course not. Um, But the Bible doesn't say that because... What the Bible says is that ultimately you cannot help yourself. You and I, all of us, we cannot help ourselves enough to get to heaven. We can't do it. God has to come do that for us. If God doesn't do that, then the rest of this is just a useless, futile exercise. We might as well kill ourselves today. Right? God has to come and save us. That's the fundamental reality under God. That's the grace that even underlines this story. Okay, When the king says, 
you have you have done well, come and inherit the kingdom, okay? Underneath all of that is the offer of the kingdom in the first place. And notice there's no discussion of, of how much feeding and clothing and visiting was going on. Okay, there's not a quantity put on this. And so this is where the, the, the message of the gospel is considered to be a scandal or sometimes falls on deaf ears because it does not rely on human merit. It relies only on the unmerited grace of God. Once we get that, then there is something that follows from there. The most generous giving people that I know are, are one of two kinds. Either they're scared to death because they think it all depends on their works and they're doing everything they possibly can to earn God's love. I've met a couple of people like that and they're never going to be satisfied and never happy because they know they could always do more. The other side, the kind that I've met way more of, is the kind that says, you know, God has done so much for me that I want to do more for others. And, and it's not about what you deserve. It's not about what the other person should or should not have. It's about that unmerited grace that simply gives. Now, with that said, we have to understand in the complexity of giving that, that we have to make choices about our giving, don't we? And yes, it's, it's easier, maybe it's more productive even, to give to someone that has some potential, some possibility. And yet sometimes we give just because we give. We give knowing that that person tomorrow is going to need exactly the same thing and it's never going to change. But God also loves that person. There's no way to quantify any of this. Absolutely no way to quantify any of it. Which is what keeps us always on edge. Always saying to God, God, what more can I do? How can I grow more here? Yeah, great comment. Let's keep, let's keep talking. Yes. Um, on the great judgment, yes, I think I'm still not clear in my head because I don't get it. But um, we, because of Jesus' death and salvation, we can repent of our sins and we are forgiven. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, basically, if you know, if you think you've committed a sin and you repent, you're forgiven. So, let's just say you die, go to heaven. You probably have very little. Sins if you're in that type of mode. And then faith is dead without works. Okay. So then is judgment more so on the works that we do rather than the sins that we commit? And what if we struggle with that like a lot of people do, as you say, or am I doing enough? If you go to God and, and you repent and say, I'm trying to to listen, Lord, I'm trying to do a lot. Maybe I'm not doing enough. Am I going to be judged on that? So I think I just don't. I just don't know. I'm a little confused. Yeah. Well, that's a great statement. You asked a lot of great questions, and, and I agree. They're great questions. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you are, you are confused. I had an old pastor friend who used to say that if you're not confused, then you're not informed. Um, and that's a really good way to think about that, right? The more you think about it, the more confusing it becomes in a way. And, and so we're left at the end of the day saying, thank God you've got this all figured out because I don't. But then, of course, you, you do have to make peace with it in some way, shape, or form. 
how do we make peace within ourselves with this business of the unmerited grace of God? And I, I repent and I'm forgiven, and yet now I'm told I got to do some good stuff. Da, 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 da. Where is all of that? Okay. And that's what you're trying to come to, I think. How do I make peace with this whole thing? Well, I've talked with you before about the paradoxical nature of good theology. That in order to really engage with God at a deep level, you have to be able to say something on one side of a question and then look at oftentimes what seems to be the opposite affirmation and realize the validity of that as well and understand that you're saying two things at the same time that don't go together and yet they do go together. And this is one of those places. On the one hand, and, and I would say with a bit more weight and a bit more truth, everything begins and ends with the unmerited grace of God. Okay? God created us. We did not choose to be created. Okay, that's grace right there. The God has said, I'm going to cause you to be. Okay? That statement right there is enough to say that whatever we are is completely dependent on God and is completely dependent on the grace of God. Okay? With that said, once I start to understand that, then I begin to understand just how much I do not deserve anything that God has given me, but out of gratitude to God and out of a desire to participate in what God does the way God does it, I want to do things the way God does because it seems to work out pretty well for God. And so I start to do what God does, which then is to become that righteous, moral, ethical person who does the right thing instead of the wrong thing. And so the motivation for doing the right thing comes out of gratitude, not out of fear. And so begin with that unmerited grace and love of God that says, don't worry about it, God's going to take care of you the way he wants to take care of you. But in this life, so that's how I come to peace, okay? But part of the way I come to peace with this is by realizing I'm not supposed to come to peace with this. I am never supposed to get to that place where I say, I've done enough. So I'll take care of don't do any more. That, that, that's not going to exist, I think, if you're honest with Scripture, if, you're, if you truly listen to Jesus. Right? If you truly listen to Jesus, the only time you can say is, I've done everything I possibly could do, is when you meet Jesus. And he says, you're done. Right? Up until then, there is always that question for me. That's a, that is the creative <laughs> Uh, uh, inspiring tension in which I live my life and in which you should live your life. Okay? I don't go to bed at night worrying and fretting that I haven't done enough, but I do spend a lot of my time during the day wondering what else I can do, which is, by the way, what we're supposed to do. You don't ever retire from Christian life. You don't ever retire from a responsibility to love as best you can those people whom God calls you to love. God does not call you to love everyone in the same way, okay? Not even Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Carlos Slim and all the king's horses and all the king's men can feed the whole world. They can feed some. Here's where the theology of the very first story and the very first issue of, um, what's that series of books? Chicken Soup for the Soul. Remember Chicken Soup for the Soul? This is one of the most beautiful stories I've ever heard. It still informs what I do. It's one of the reasons that I keep going to Syria, by the way. Remember the first story in the first edition that I ever saw of Chicken Soup for the Soul is the, the guy who's throwing the starfish. Remember that story? Everybody know that story? I'll tell the story again if you haven't heard the story. The story is 
a man is walking on the beach one day and he observes another guy walking on the beach. And a whole bunch, thousands and thousands of starfish have, wiped, have washed up on the beach and they can't get back into the water. And so this one guy is walking along on the beach picking up starfish and throwing them back into the water. And the other guy comes up to the, the guy throwing the starfish in the water. He says, you're crazy. What are you trying to do? He says, you can't save all these starfish. And the guy picks up an armful of starfish and throws it back in the water. He says, save that one. <laughs> We're never going to save everybody. We're never going to feed, clothe, house everybody. We're never going to solve all the world's problems. But you can solve somebody's problems somewhere. And once you start working with somebody, you want to do more. If you're paying attention to the Spirit of God. Right? So, I hope I've helped you come to peace with the fact that you're not going to be at peace. <laughs> yes, let's go over here with the mic. Isn't this fun? One thing that might help with that that I had read is that um, we shouldn't confuse righteousness and God's grace with forgiveness. That for, we are forgiven because of God's grace, but God's grace is much bigger than just forgiveness for the things we did. So that might help a little bit. Yeah, yeah. That, that reminds me of another extremely important point I want to make, and then we're going to hear from you. And it's this, that we focus so much on God's grace that has come into our lives, right? We just want to be forgiven. We just want to be forgiven. We just want to be taken care of. There's a whole lot more going on in the world than just whether or not I get into heaven. Okay? And that more that's going on in the world is that God is very, very concerned about taking care of the whole family. He's very concerned about the evil that exists in the world. So concerned that he chose to come and die for it. And I need to be concerned too. God takes evil very seriously. God takes the fact that people are suffering and dying and starving and being improperly imprisoned and being given up. All the bad stuff is in the world. That grieves God's heart to no end. And if it grieves God's heart, it should grieve my heart or else I don't understand anything about God. And in the midst of, of moving into that grief and that pain and that anguish and suffering because of it, in some small way, sharing the suffering I participate with Jesus in his suffering, and that's a godly thing, because it helps me learn deeper, more important lessons, and it helps me participate with what God is doing, and there's no higher joy than to suffer with somebody. Does that make sense? I know I'm just looking at Barbara, but I'm talking to all of you, right? Okay, here we go. Yeah, um, I wanted to throw into this mix, what about predestination? Yeah, oh, good for you. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, we're going to be here until next Thursday. You realize? I hope you guys are <laughs> What about predestination? Absolutely. Predestination wants to talk about this aspect of God's being and God's character that says, well, God started it all. God is so immensely powerful. God knows what's going to go out on the end. God knows the sheep and the goats and all that stuff, that God must know what's going to happen at the end. And there's a part of us that needs to say, yes, God is that big. Okay, God is that competent and capable. Okay? As soon as we say that, though, that God knows the way it's all going to go, we also then want to say, well, God already knows how it's going to turn out. I don't need to worry about it. 
I'm just, I can do whatever I want to. It's already figured out. It's already decided. Well, that takes us to a place where we can be irresponsible. Okay? God never lets us off the hook. And this is one of those stories where God says, I do not let you off the hook. You are not responsible ultimately for everything, but you are responsible for your own decisions. There's a tension between those two stories, those two themes in Scripture, that we simply rely on the grace of God. We throw ourselves on the mercy of God and say, God, I don't understand any of it. I don't have it figured out. I'm doing the best I can. I know it's not enough. I throw myself on your mercy. Yes, of course. But God still comes back. Jesus still comes back and says, what are you going to do today about this? And, and that's life. Right? I am faced with a decision every day, and you are too, multiple times a day, about what I'm going to do, about what the little bit that I do know and understand. And the little bit that I do know and understand simply says this, the big cosmic stuff only God is going to take care of, I have enough problem taking care about that hungry person who's sitting right there in front of me. But some of us are not predestined to be the sheep and some to be the goats. I don't think scripture ever finally says that there are going to be sheep over here and goats over here because you've got to take this one story from Jesus and balance it off with a lot of other things. There are some scriptures that I think would lead us to say that ultimately everybody gets to heaven. Okay? Other scriptures say, no, that's not the way it is. And so the way I come to peace with that is to say, you know, God is the one who decides I don't need to, I'll leave it to God. Now, I have my list of the people that I think should not be in heaven. <laughs> I do. I do. That's my list. That's not God's list. And so I have to live there saying, if God, here's, here's where predestination also has some theological grounding. Predestination wants to say that God is the only one who decides it. God has the right to decide it. If God, in his infinite wisdom and love and righteousness and truth, decides that some need to live in forever, in, in, in eternal damnation, then God gets to do that. Whether I think that's right or not is not the point. It's what God thinks. And so if you're truly going to understand the majesty and sovereignty and righteousness of God, and the lack of it in you and me, then we have to give God the right and authority to do whatever God is going to do. And God clearly has said to us, your decision makes a difference. Your decision counts. Now, how much it counts and with whom it counts and what God does with that, I'm not going to judge in any way, shape, or form. It may be that Adolf Hitler is in heaven. I know. He's one of those on my bad list. But I'm not God. What's that? Paul probably is. Paul, Paul probably is in heaven, and Paul killed Christians. Okay? There again, we are meant to live in that creative tension. A, a lot of us were, were, were taught growing up that faith would answer all your questions. True faith doesn't answer your questions, it just asks more questions and puts you into that place where you are, we call it a creative tension, right? Into that place where you say, Wow, there's all these big questions. I don't need to be God. Actually, the story of the final judgment uh, lowers it down to a level where we know what we're supposed to do. Okay? 
the big questions of who God saves and why he saves and what he does with all that, it's clearly only up to him. All that's left to me to do is to deal with what's in front of my face. And that's hard enough, because it's hard enough to figure out how to feed the world and clothe the world and, and make the world safe for democracy and all that other good stuff we want to do. But that's what I'm left with to deal with here and now, and I'm responsible. And so are you. That's the starfish that's right there in front of me, not all those that are over there. That's the one that I pick up and throw back into the sea. If I do that, faithfully, consistently, more and more, and continue to live with that struggle and that tension, then I am living in the present reality of the kingdom of God, and God's got to take care of the rest of it. There are times, and it's very tempting, I have to tell you this. Don't tell Helen I said this. Good Lord. <laughs> there are times it's very tempting just to pretty much give up all of our material wealth. It really is. As soon as I do that, though, then I'm dependent on your material wealth supporting me. <laughs> that's, that's part of the difficulty, is it, Right? You know, this business of live, live a life as a, as a poor beggar, don't accumulate anything for yourself, well, then you're dependent on someone else giving to you. So, so how does that work out? See, it's not simple. It's not, there is no formula. There is no formula whatsoever. There is only that consistent call to do as much as you can for as many as you can for as long as you can and never to think that you've done enough, but never to be worried that you have done too little. Except we all know that we've done too little, don't we? See, you're going to be so frustrated when you leave here. <laughs> yes, over here, Meryl. Regarding the kingdom of heaven, it seems to me, as I recall what you have said in the past, that the kingdom of heaven is also taking place right now on earth with us. Yes, yes. The kingdom of heaven, that, that's a very good thing to look at in this big conversation here. Jesus very clearly said the kingdom is here. Okay, it's also there, but it's already here. And, and it only makes logical sense. If God created everything, if God is everywhere, that's the definition of the kingdom. The kingdom is where God is. God is here. Our problem is that here, we're blinded to it. We don't see it in the same way that we believe we will see it at the end of all things. When all things are revealed, everything is crystal clear. There's no more issue, no more problem, no more sin, no more blackness, no more blindness to the presence of God. But God is here right now. That's what Jesus said to the disciples. That's the first thing he preached. Right? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. And so, how do we have that kingdom? How do we see the kingdom? How do we participate in the kingdom right here, right now? Well, there's lots of ways to answer that, right? You can go to the temple and have a fancy, magical, mystical service and think you're in the kingdom, right? You can say, you know, I follow these rules and regulations better than somebody else does, therefore that's the kingdom. No, the way Jesus talked about the kingdom was when people were loving each other, taking care of each other. That's the kingdom. But I continue to be impressed more and more with how the truth of Scripture and all this cosmic, magical, mystical reality of the kingdom of God is right here, right now in front of my face. That's what Jesus said. Because everything Jesus did was about loving people here and now. And let the rest take care of itself, because only God can take care of it. Does that make sense to you? The kingdom of God is present when you actually are helping someone. And actually you discover that in helping them, you're helped more than they're helped. Does that make sense to you? If you've never experienced that, 
please come talk with me and then go with me somewhere. Go with me to Cuba or to Kenya or to Syria or um, across the border here or, or go with me to the house of the friend who's just lost their mother or their sister or their brother and grieve with them for a while. This is not just about taking care of poor people. This is about taking care of everybody. That's where the kingdom is. What else is going on here? Yes. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is thinking you have all the answers. Yes, yes. The opposite of faith is thinking you have all the answers. You don't have all the answers, but we have enough answers. Jesus didn't say everything that we need to know. Jesus didn't reveal everything about everything, but he revealed what we need to know now. What we need to know now is that you're not in charge, you're not God, you don't need to worry about who's going to heaven or not, you don't even need to worry about whether or not you're going to heaven, because only God is going to make that decision. What you and I need to worry about is taking care of each other here and now. And we have to keep studying and learning and knowing those things about God so that we have the spiritual energy and wisdom and skill to take care of other people. But unless we go take care of other people, we also won't understand anything about God. An interesting dynamic. Okay, the Spirit is telling me to stop. So <laughs> I get excited about this stuff. Let's pray. Oh dear God, help us. Thank you for being honest with us. Thank you for trusting us enough to allow us to participate in what you're doing in the world and calling us to do that. Help us to do that more and more. Help us to be smart, to be wise, to be generous, to be kind, to be forgiving. Help us to live into the righteousness that we see in your son Jesus. Help us to trust him always to keep leading us. And then please do that, God. Please smack us upside the head and stand right in front of us and say, here's what I want you to do today, and give us the strength and the power to do it. For Jesus' sake. Amen. God bless you all.